I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favourite interviews from The Daily Show after the market close that I co-anchor along with Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostic. What You Miss on Bloomberg TV. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week started with a sell-off in Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency fell below that all-important $30,000 level. It's a key support level for the first time in a month. Now, on days like that, it's pretty easy for crypto critics to say, well, Bitcoin can't be a store of value. It's too volatile. So we got some reaction from Michael Sonnenschein. He's the CEO of Grayscale Investments and asked what his response to those naysayers would be after the sell-off we've seen. I think investors who are allocating to crypto know that volatility is going to be part of it. Most of the investors we're dealing with, though, are not looking at short-term price movements or not looking at short-term volatility. Their crypto allocations are really over medium to longer-term time horizons. So I don't think people feel terribly phased when they see, you know, sudden movements in the market like this. Are they phased when it acts like any other risk asset, though? Because I thought the whole idea was it's a diversification play, but then it falls in line with stocks. It certainly is a diversification play for a lot of investors. It is a differentiated return stream. But on days like today, when there's market fears, it doesn't really seem like there's anything, any asset class that can really, you know, avoid some of that liquidity coming out of the market um, and a lot of that deleveraging happening. How are you thinking about liquidity in the market? We're showing the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. We know, of course, your trust trying to talk about when the SEC will allow an ETF and then the discount, of course, that's behind that. How much of that is an integral to providing not only confidence, but liquidity in the market as well? Well, so you're referring to Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, our flagship fund, uh, trades under symbol GBTC. And even though there is no Bitcoin ETF today, investors aren't waiting to add crypto to their portfolios. GBTC is doing hundreds of millions of dollars a day in notional trading volume. And it really is, for many investors, the easiest way for them to add crypto exposure alongside stocks, bonds, ETFs, other things they may own. And so over time, as the fund continues to grow, I certainly think we'll see liquidity in the product grow as well. What about the 42 million GBTC shares that are due to release from July 12th to 22nd as a lockup that expires? Mm -hmm. Is that a short-term issue that investors are talking to you about? What sort of pressure does that exert not only on GBTC but also Bitcoin price itself? Will it go higher or lower? I think a lot of not only investors but people in the press have been wondering what the effect of the fund growing so large will do now that some of those shares are unlocking. Um, It's a little too early to tell but what we have seen is with GBTC trading at a discount to net asset value a lot of investors particularly institutional money has been stepping into that trade realizing that that capital can actually help them own or control more Bitcoin than it would be if they were buying Bitcoin in the spot market. So ultimately, we do see that NAV, um, that progression back towards NAV happening. Um, And in the longest case scenario, it would be an ETF that would arbitrage away any discount to net asset value. And you talk about investors stepping into the market. How have flows looked as of as of late? I'm thinking Bitcoin and also Ethereum as we were chatting with Mike McGlone. 
I think investors, you know, for the most part, have a lot of them, their Bitcoin or their Ethereum allocations. Certainly now the trend amongst investors to have diversity within their crypto holdings. So looking at other assets to build out their portfolios. And I think a lot of them are really starting to get excited about some of these new use cases of digital asset protocols that are starting to pop up. Let's talk about that because, of course, Grayscale DeFi Fund is what you're mm -hmm. just announcing. Yep. New fund, of course, Coindesk DeFi Index is sort of where it's going to be tracking DeFi, decentralized finance, what sort of opportunities are people wanting to get exposure to by going into this? Well, so decentralized finance or DeFi is really traditional financial services meeting decentralization. So for typical users, typical investors, typical consumers, they're going to banks and brokerage houses um, and other service providers to get lending, to get borrowing, uh, to get exchanges. And DeFi really represents the opportunity to do that in a completely decentralized fashion. And this is a new hot area of crypto that we really think investors have been telling us is an area they want exposure to. So launching a fund that gives them that targeted exposure to a wide array of digital asset protocols in the DeFi space is a really attractive opportunity and we're really excited to launch this fund for them. What is that targeted opportunity that investors are saying we want access to? I'm the rookie, Joe Weisenthal's out, Caroline does this all the time, explain to me. Well, so I think DeFi represents a new subset of assets within the broadly defined crypto space, right? We've seen Bitcoin emerge as a store of value, Ethereum emerge as really the gas to power decentralized applications. We've seen the emergence of stable coins. We're seeing the emergence of DeFi protocols. So we're starting to see various assets come up that have new and differentiated use cases and investors are eager to get exposure to them. Exposure in particular when, when they can also be getting into GBTC as well, which is trading at a discount that has continued. I mean, when how much are you seeing come investors wanting to move between your products? Is it going to be totally new types of investors coming? How much are you seeing some sort of cannibalization within it? I don't think we'll see cannibalization. I think, if anything, again, this trend towards diversification is a really important one. This is Grayscale's 15th fund. We certainly have a lot of investors who've invested across all 15 funds as we've continued to be a pioneer and bring new products into the market. And also, as investors are increasingly looking to us to provide them with these interesting opportunities, sometimes before there's even enough market sentiment to really identify them and you know, really think about it as simplified access. Your due diligence, of course, it's, it's focusing on Coindesk DeFi index. Of course, we've seen protocols not always work as intended. How do you ensure that you're protecting people's money when they're getting into these DeFi space? So when we look at the DeFi index and now the DeFi fund that will be based around it, every quarter different assets will be included or excluded from the index itself. And so there's qualification criteria that must be met. So over time, as investors stay invested in the fund, they'll remember and see that the assets with the greatest value, the greatest exposure within DeFi will remain in the fund. And those that you know, are starting to fade away will be disqualified from the fund's holdings. Last question, Bitcoin. I mean, at what point is it coming by? Because I hear there's this institutional <laughs> yes. money sitting on the sidelines wanting to get in. So I'm never one to make price targets or price predictions, um, but I can tell you based on who's investing in the market, um, the sizes of the allocations that they're making and the convictions that they do, that I think the opportunity for Bitcoin remains very, very bright. This week, investors had a slew of housing data to sort through. Confidence among U.S. home builders fell to an 11-month low in July. That's as builders were forced to contend with still sky-high costs of materials and, of course, that continuing shortage of labor. 
There was also a slight cool down in the mortgage applications and a less than rosy picture on home purchase growth. So some are now wondering if we might have a buyer strike on our hands. We spoke with Matt Ishbier. He's the chairman and CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage, who was at the New York Stock Exchange for Mortgage Brokers Day and asked him, well, look, if real estate prices have just gotten too high for people. You know, we're seeing it across the board. You know, I think prices are definitely going up, but rates are still so low. So we haven't seen a big slowdown. We actually had a great second quarter. We think the third quarter is going to be even better at UWM. And so we're excited about what's going on. I think the slowdown is there's obviously a little lack of inventory out there. People that are in forbearance aren't selling their homes. And so as that comes out, I think the market's going to stay hot through the end of the year. Give us a little sense here, though, Matt, as to sort of what the breakdown in uh, the types of mortgages that you're seeing. Are these basically uh, people coming in, getting a, a, buying a home for the first time with a 30-year? Are these refinancings? What are you seeing? It's a good mixture. You know, as rates tick up, and they, they did in the, in the second quarter, they're kind of come down a little bit lately, but as they tick up, there'll be a lot less refinances. And so companies that are relying on only refinance, you'll see a lot less of that. We're seeing a lot of purchase. We had an all-time record purchase quarter. We're going to continue to grow in the purchase. So purchase is, you know, is a, I won't say cycle-proof, but a lot less cyclical than the refinance. And so we're seeing a lot more purchase than refi, uh, definitely from, from second quarter, first quarter. And we think the third quarter, we're going to see a lot of purchase. But with rates ticking down, you know, FHFA just reduced a fee which is actually helping spur refinances. And so mortgage brokers across the country are getting busier right now. So we might see even more business on the refi than we thought uh, after that recent change. Why are you so positive on the third quarter, Matt? Why are people going to still be going out there and buying new homes? You know, because there's, there's a lot of opportunity. Rates are very low. And the truth is people see homes differently than they saw pre-pandemic. And so since COVID, we're seeing a lot more people realize that, hey, buying a house, buying a house with maybe a couple extra bedrooms or maybe with a little bit of yard matters more. Home is something different than it did pre-pandemic. And so we've seen a lot more purchase than I think a lot of the reports are showing. And so it's been very good. And obviously we work with mortgage brokers who are local in the community. And so we, we have a little bit more of a, you know, in the weeds approach. And we feel that right now. And so purchase has been great. I see it continuing. Rates are low. Housing is going gonna, is gonna to continue to be strong. It might not go up 10% a year, but it's not going to go down, you know, or go down significantly. We see it being very strong going forward. All right, let's talk about your business, though. I mean, obviously, this has attracted a lot of folks uh, to uh, this industry. Uh, I mean, you are obviously one of the dominant uh, wholesalers out there in the mortgage market. I think uh, Quicken is the only one even bigger than you. But you got a lot of competition out there from Freedom and Wells Fargo and a lot of others here. How is that affecting your pricing power, your margins right now? Yeah, so we are the leader. We're the number one wholesale lender. So we are bigger okay. than Quicken, bigger than everyone else. We're the number two overall. And so we have a lot of control on pricing. And as we've basically said, hey, listen, we want to make sure consumers get great deals across the board while still making money for our investors and making sure we're looking out for our shareholders. And you're going to see that in our second quarter earnings along with hopefully third quarter and beyond. And so definitely there's some pressure. As, as there's less mortgages being done, people can compete harder. But we have a big advantage based on our technology and our cost to originate. So what you'll see is a lot of mortgage companies look really good when rates are low. We think we're the elite mortgage companies in all cycles, especially as rates tick up. And I didn't, I didn't mean to shortchange Matt and the size of his company. <laughs> oh, no, he is a Michigan right. State guy, and uh, being from Northwestern, <laughs> you know, I couldn't help but uh, take him down a peg. <laughs> <laughs> at a safe distance, remain at a safe distance. <laughs> Meanwhile, Matt, though, talk to us about you talk about your technology, and what's so interesting is the way in which people are trying to disrupt the mortgage industry. What we learn in COVID is things can be done differently, but I've just signed a mortgage and it 
and it felt really archaic. You had to go in person, you had to sign, I had to give over, you know, signing rights to her husband. Why can't we do more of this online? Why do you still have to gather in an office, sign your name away? Are we seeing innovation keep pace with the amount that deals need to be done? Yeah, so honestly, I think you're just working with the wrong people. You gotta go to findamortgagebroker.com because it's all tech, it's all simple. We're closing loans in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 days all the time. Purchase, refi, I think our average at the company is about 17 days, the industry is 50. So other people might be archaic, but we are not archaic at UWM. Mortgage brokers are not archaic. They are in the weeds, they have great technology. The process, nobody, like, it's, it's interesting, we have a mortgage business. Nobody wants a mortgage, they want the house or they want the savings. We have to make the process faster, easier, cheaper. That's what mortgage brokers do, that's what UWM is doing, and that's how we're differentiating, and that's why we're growing so fast while others maybe aren't. All right, talk to us up here about the regulatory environment, Matt. Obviously, uh, a different regime in Washington now, a regime that has actually talked about uh, potentially tightening regulations specifically for the mortgage industry. Uh, are you anticipating any significant changes uh, on that front? You know, we really aren't. You know, I'm, I'm all for any regulation. You know, we're a big company. People think we don't want regulation. We see regulation as a positive. Anything that's good for consumers helps mortgage brokers. If it helps mortgage brokers, it helps UWM. So if the Biden administration comes down and tightens some things down, it's going to help us win long term. But I don't see anything coming down the, you know, down the pike right now. We saw a loosening as in lowering rates with the FHFA fee by Sandra Thompson uh, leading that group. And so that's positive for all of mortgage people across the board. So we think it's all good going forward. Second half of the year is going to be better than the first half. The first half was an all-time record. And so we're excited about the second half and then leading into 2022. Did you ring the closing bell today? Yeah, we got a chance. We had yeah. 75 of our clients out here. So we had them out here ringing the bell, having a lot of fun, you know, educating people about mortgage brokers. Yeah. A lot of fun here today. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It was a strong warm-up ahead of the big show. Big tech earnings seasons kicked off at the end of this week and Twitter and Snapchat posted quarterly revenue that blew past analyst expectations. And their larger rivals, Facebook and Alphabet, of course, don't report results until next week. But those numbers were still enough to give the entire sector a boost. Both Twitter and Snap benefited, well, from a digital advertising and e-commerce pandemic boom that as companies of all sizes are still turning to social media platforms to reach customers who are stuck at home and are now pretty addicted to e-commerce. We got the reaction from Nicole Perrin, an e-marketer principal analyst at Insider Intelligence, and asked her, well, if these digital advertising levels, if they're sustainable. It absolutely is. I mean, one thing that we don't see going backward is the share of retail transactions that occur online. The pandemic really accelerated that about two years forward in the U.S. 
And so it just gives advertisers that much more reason to reach people online in the place where they're converting. Now, the growth rates this quarter, I would say, are sort of not sustainable. And that's because Q2 2020, that was the trough of the digital ad market last year. So this is going to be sort of the easiest comp that most of these platforms have. So I do expect growth to moderate compared to this most recent quarter. Um, but in terms of the investment itself, no, we don't think that will go backward in any way. And this is sort of a real transformation. And we've been talking about, I guess, from what would normally be advertising on television or advertising in uh, you know, a traditional a sort of a newspaper or periodical here. The sense here that advertisers understand that the users, at least the users they want to target, are on Snap and on a Pinterest and uh, Facebook to a certain extent and even to Twitter here. Is the general idea here that the majority of the ad spend needs to be on those platforms, not just a small share? Well, I don't know if it would necessarily be a majority because, in fact, one of the fastest growing places that we see for ad spending right now is on retail properties, so directly on the places where people are transacting, like on Amazon. Mm. Um, and, and also, of course, on CTV, these streaming players are becoming really important. More people are spending more of their TV time with streaming as opposed to traditional. Um, but I would say a significant plurality of spending will continue to be on these social platforms. And yes, it is because of the amount of information they have about who their users are and what they're interested in. And of course, you know, what they'll click and convert on, which is what advertisers are particularly caring about. You know, mm. targeting is becoming harder in yes. lots of places with cookie deprecation and other changes like what Apple has done for privacy. And social companies do have a lot of valuable information about their logged in user base. Talk to us about the pushback, though, on that targeting and whether in the longer term, who's in the most weak spot as that continues to become what, what consumers are talking about and wanting, even if they don't realize perhaps in practice they really want it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, who's going to be in the worst spot? The answer is basically whoever has the least amount of information about the users of a given platform. So when we're talking about social platforms, those are logged in users. Perhaps you don't know going forward what they're doing all across the web because that information is being pulled back. It is becoming harder to collect even for the likes of Facebook. Um, but you still have a lot of valuable information about them that you can use. And having that information at scale makes that information more valuable to advertisers who are looking for scale when they do targeting. But other publishers have also really valuable information here. I mentioned retailers. Retail media has grown in importance because of the commercial value of that specific info where Amazon or Walmart or Target know how you shop, how you search for products, what actually makes you click through and buy a product and how often you're restocking some of those items, for example. And of course, you know, I mentioned the CTV players as well. They also typically are logged in services. They do have information about the households who subscribe that is also valuable for them to facilitate targeting. And then talking about other like more typical news or lifestyle content publishers, 
they're really working hard to understand the insights that they have about their audience that maybe they haven't quite put the pieces together yet, but they're working to come up with their own audience segments that will also be attractive to advertisers or perhaps introduce more contextual offerings as yeah. well. well. Basically, everyone's trying to find a way yeah. for this, this personalization to keep going. We'll talk a little bit about uh, how these ads are structured, because, I mean, you still see some of the more <laughs> traditional advertisements, you know, your 15, 30-second ads that are clearly ads. But on a lot of these social media sites, you're starting to see those lines really blurred here, obviously with the whole uh, advent of the influencers on Instagram. Uh, but even to a certain extent, you know, what you scroll through on TikTok, you start watching something, and a lot of times you don't even realize it's an ad until you've almost gotten all the way through it, and then you feel suckered, and then, of course, <laughs> you run out and buy it anyway, because why not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, the watchword on a lot of these platforms is authenticity, which I think is a little bit ironic because of the case, like you just mentioned, you're, you're going for authenticity almost to try to, to fool someone into thinking that it's not an ad. But influencers have become really popular, especially among these younger generations. You know, you mentioned how popular it is to target millennials or Gen Z consumers. They do follow a lot of influencers. Uh, many of them say that they buy based on uh, formats like that. But generally speaking, I think digital has really uh, popularized what we call native ad formats, which basically just means an ad that's not obtrusive, something that follows the look and feel of the site or the app that you're in so that it's not interruptive, so that it's not as annoying, so that it doesn't pull you out of the experience. And consumers do tend to say that the, they find those types of ads less annoying. For a company, well, therefore, paint the picture for us in 2022, therefore. If you're an e-commerce player who's wanting to, you know, make your mark, do you think you'll still be using a Twitter to a certain extent? Everyone's always been trying to call the death of that. Is it more that you're going to be looking at Instagram? Are you looking at TikTok? Who's going to be sort of, or do you have to be spread across all? You cannot have this winner-takes-all kind of mentality. Yeah, I think you're, you do have to be spread across a lot of platforms. It's not a winner-take-all. No one of these platforms has everyone who's in your target demographic, even Facebook, which is the most widespread. So you do have to look across more than one. Um, you know, one thing that I would mention is Twitter mentioned today that they a really strong resurgence of brand advertising. Historically, Twitter has been stronger on the brand side as opposed to the direct response or performance side. I know they've been putting a lot of work into those direct response products and hope to grow them. Um, but, but typically, I do expect advertisers to continue to focus more on platforms like Facebook or Snap or Amazon or Google search when it comes to their really lower funnel goals and looking perhaps more to Twitter, uh, maybe more to YouTube, maybe more to CTV for their upper funnel brand awareness oriented goals. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. The global chip crisis was top of mind again this week as Intel and Texas Instruments reported quarterly earnings. Now, Intel CEO predicted a protracted shortage and said the supply disruption could last out into 2023. The gap between ordering and delivering a chip but it's still growing, with an average industry-wide wait of, get this, 19.3 weeks for a chip. Companies are so scarred by this chip crisis, well, then now they're kind of stockpiling them, exacerbating the shortage. So we got some insight from Willie Shee. He's a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School and asked him, well, is there anything to mitigate these shortages other than, well, time itself? Uh, I think there has been a lot of reallocation of production. So, for example, TSMC has talked about how they're giving priority to the automotive market. Of course, when they give priority to the automotive market, then they're taking that capacity away from somebody else. So, I mean, I think we're going to start seeing some progress, but it's going to be some time. As, as you said, the lead times are still out there. Uh, as Caroline was saying, you know, people are stockpiling chips as well. And that's probably making the situation a little worse because that means they're uh, they're buying in these chips and not using them directly. Uh, but all of that stuff takes capacity. And how much does that affect well the future of these chip companies that are trying to make investment decisions now, but trying to realize how real that demand is from their end consumer? Well, that that's the big question. Okay, uh, for example, I, I was just at. Uh, Global Foundries on Monday because they announced a $1 billion expansion and they were going to build a new fab. And of course, Intel has been talking about uh, adding new capacity. Texas Instruments uh, just bought this Micron fab in Utah, which is going to increase their capacity. The bet everybody has is that as they add this capacity, demand is going to continue to increase because of electrification, use of more chips in basically everything. There are more chips in cars, more chips in consumer devices. So they're kind of betting that, you know, as this capacity comes on stream, which is going to take a year or two years in many cases, that that demand will keep up. Now, the question is how many chips are being stockpiled, you know, because these things also, uh, they also age, right? You know, they go obsolete, so you got to use them. So it, it's a tricky balance, and everybody's trying to figure that out right now. Everyone's trying to figure it out, and obviously these companies are all sort of jockeying to be kind of uh, the lead on that. With regards to domestic manufacturing here in the U.S. and what it could be uh, down the road, Willie, is this a situation where we're just going to be talking about maybe just Intel and, and Texas Instruments, or are there going to be more players in this, a, a broader selection of companies to choose from? Well, uh, first of all, it's important to understand Texas Instruments is in a very different segment than Intel, right? Yes. Texas Instruments is uh, in this uh, analog and mixed signal. In that market, the U.S. actually does pretty well. We have companies like them. We have analog devices, which is another big player, uh, you know, and you have some of these uh, companies like Corvo and uh, Skyworks who are, you know, really major players in that market. In the logic side, and that's where a lot of the controversy has come, that's where uh, you know, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act is looking to uh, 
fund uh, more competition there. You know, we have Intel, we have TSMC, who's going to be building, uh, who is building a fab in Arizona. We have Samsung uh, in Austin, Texas, and then we have Global Foundries. But those, those are the big players in the U.S. The, the real question is, in that area, are we going to get the leading edge capacity? You know, TSMC is going to put uh, a fab in that's a little bit behind their leading edge in Taiwan. Samsung will probably be the same. Intel's scrambling to catch up, right? So that that's where a lot of the questions, a lot of the controversy are right now. How much pushback is there when you get a company such as, I think you were saying it's TSMC, that says, look, we're going to treat one sector, like the auto sector, differently from the rest of you. We're talking to Whirlpool CEO just earlier on the show, and he's saying, look, actually, in a lot of times, it's driving up the margins of the cheaper goods the most, because, of course, that's where the thinnest margins are. And, and that if a chip cost changes or a plastics cost changes there, it's going to hit the price point harder. How do well, companies make a decision like that? Well, it's hard, right? Because, you know, I, I was talking to people there some number of years ago, and they said, well, we know what the whole market size is. Okay. And then we have, they supply all the competitors in that market. So they have an idea what the market is going to look like. And then all the competitors come in with their forecasts. And, uh, you know, the TSMC guy told me it's like they're all forecasting that they're each going to get 100% market share. And we know that's not going to happen. So now what you have to do is you have to go back to your customer and say, uh, I'm not going to give you all you want, okay, uh, behind the scenes. They're saying, I'm going to give you what I think you're going to use, mm -hmm. okay? And that's how they allocate capacity. Now, if you're a big customer, like if you're Apple, you know, TSMC's largest customer, you're going to get what you ask for, right? And then if you're a smaller customer, it's it's a tough balance. They got to balance all these things. They got to tell their customer, I can't give you what you want. You know, by the way, sometimes the customers, uh, you know, especially in the auto sector, we've seen, and also in the IT sector, when they don't need it, they say, oh, sorry, we don't want it anymore, mm -hmm. right? So what you're seeing now is a lot of these companies saying, if you want assured capacity, then I need you to prepay. I need Ready. you to put money up front that says you're going to take these chips. That's it from What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every week from 4.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.